Let's pray before we open up God's word together. Father, your word is so enlightening to us, so powerful for us, so needed by us. Would you speak to us through your words, from your word? Would you help us to see important truths that you've revealed in Scripture so that you might equip and prepare, build us up, lift us up, edify us, prepare us. We say this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, during the winter sometime back in the 4th century, Governor Agricola of Armenia was confronted with an issue of a group of 40 soldiers who refused to offer sacrifice that was ordered by Emperor Licinius. I think that's how you pronounce it. These men, these 40 soldiers, these 40 Christian men, like Daniel and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or like many of the apostles, like we've been seeing in our series in Matthew, specifically there in in Matthew chapter 10, These men were just not going to bow down and make sacrifices uh, that this human leader was directing them towards because they did not want to forsake Christ. These were bold men of Christ who did not fear man. They feared God. We're going to see what happened to them. And no matter how much persuasion came their way to just give in already, no matter how much they were pressed hard to go a different direction, they courageously resisted and would not do what they were calling them to do. These were godly men who had so much to gain from an earthly perspective by just giving in. It would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? And so much to lose by remaining faithful in this really hard, impossibly difficult trial and situation. As the authorities tried to persuade, they asked these 40 men, but what about your comrades? Meaning, why don't you just do it for the sake of the other soldiers in solidarity with the people? These were, these were Roman Soldiers there in the fourth century. Why don't you just do it for their sake? The governor pressed even harder, saying, Consider you alone of all Caesar's thousands of troops, defy him. Think of the disgrace you bring upon your legion. This group of soldiers, think of the disgrace. The 40 men, or quite literally these Christian soldiers, they were soldiers of Savaste, replied boldly, to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is more terrible still. So with this stalemate, of course, neither side recounting, the governor threatened to flog and torture them if they did not 
offer sacrifice. Doesn't this remind us of what we've been seeing in Matthew 10? Jesus instructs the 12 apostles in the second sermon in Matthew, warning them that they would be flogged in the synagogues, persecuted, brought before leaders. Does this remind you of that? But these 40 men were collectively standing together against this evil request upon them. And even with all the threats and promises of blessing, if they just gave in, they replied, nothing you can offer us would replace what we would lose in the next world. As for your threats, we despise our bodies when the welfare of our souls is at stake. That's powerful stuff. Those are some real words of convicted men holding to the truth of the gospel. So what happened to these 40 men of Savaste? Would they give in? Would they be tortured? Would they perhaps even be killed? Well, we're just going to have to wait until the end of the sermon to hear how that story goes. Because first, we're going to look at 1 Peter 4, which is a chapter chock full of instruction in preparation for persecution. This just happened to be in our daily Robert Murray uh, McShane reading plan the past week. And so it pairs well, of course, with what we've been seeing in Jesus' second sermon in Matthew chapter 10 the last few weeks. And there's just too much here in this whole chapter, I hope you can understand, for me to exhaustively get into every detail of this um, text in the shorter sermon that we have this evening. But I want us to at least glean from this big picture together as we just move through it rapidly, really, really quickly. I've got six points for us through 1 Peter chapter 4. And point number one, prepare to suffer like Christ. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Our lives and our bodies here on earth is to be lived for the glory of God. We know that. We know that's the case. But have you ever wondered what might be the way for us to best go about doing that? Important thing to consider. We live for God's glory by living like His Son that He sent to us and for us. As we saw this morning in Matthew 10, Jesus must be our main priority or else we have no place claiming that we're Christians even. Clear from Matthew 10 there at the end. And being like Jesus, as we saw, entails being willing to take up our cross if the Lord should call us to that, even that cross, even towards persecution, even to death. Not everybody will go through that, but are we willing? Are we, are we pursuing him in such a way that puts him even before our lives? As believers, we must prepare to suffer like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all over the New Testament. It's a big theme. We better pay attention to it. Here's another chapter. I mean, the whole book of 1 Peter, this all over. 
reading through the Bible reading, one and two and three and four. The whole book talks about this theme. We must be willing to suffer like Christ because a willingness to suffer is a big part of our sanctification in the Christian life. You all know what sanctification is, right? It's just that process where all believers are seeking to be more and more like Jesus and less and less like their old way of living before we were saved. Well, old way of living, you know what that looks like, sinful. Being like Jesus. And I don't want us to be confused by the language there of ceasing from sin. Right there at the end of verse 1, it does not mean sinless perfection because none of us will attain that. And Scripture all over clearly shows us that we will be fighting sinful habits and thoughts and actions until the very day that we die. But this reality that Peter is getting at here is that when Christians are focused on suffering for the cause of Christ, it's a major deterrent and help us in our sanctification to turn away from our sins. God uses the persecution and suffering of the saints to make us more and more like Jesus. And when we are consciously more and more like Jesus and drawn to Jesus and being like Jesus, guess what? We're less and less drawn towards sin. Does that, that make sense what he's getting at here in these first two verses? There's a lot of activities that spur on the passions of the flesh, the human passions we see there in verse 2. But when we are prepared to suffer and actually suffer like Christ, we lean into the will of God and away from bodily passions. Church, lean into the will and plan of God for you and for me to suffer like Christ as we become more and more like Christ when we pursue those things. This leads us to our second point, and number two. And related to this, we need to prepare to avoid worldly temptations. Look with me now at verses 3 through 6. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We need to prepare ourselves to avoid worldly temptations. Our witness, fleeing from evil, makes a huge impression on unbelievers all around us. They might not like you for it. In fact, they may even persecute you on the basis of your actions, avoiding what they love and pursue and put forward so readily. But fear not, church. Even if they make fun and attack you for your Christianity, God will vindicate you for doing what is good and right in the end. Judgment is coming to all, and he will not ignore what happened to you. He won't. He didn't ignore what happened to the 12 disciples. He says, it will be more tolerable than those in Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you for rejecting 
my people. He didn't ignore it. He took account of it. He'll take account in our lives as well. Justice in a fallen world is never fully perfect. It's not possible in a fallen world with sin that we live in. This is a sad thing. We wish it was. But be encouraged that God will align everything according to his proper weights and measures and no one will get away scot-free for their wicked actions this side of heaven. And your suffering and my suffering and any believer's suffering is being acknowledged. And even if it's not taken care of this side of heaven, you better believe that it will be in judgment should they not repent. That's an important worldview that Christians should take to heart and be aware of in the midst of persecution. Now, in case you were wondering, as we read the verse 6, I just literally do not have the time to dive into the exact meaning and the preaching there to those who are dead. There's a ton of different interpretations and a lot of additional work that I wasn't able to fully dive into to be able to give a satisfactory full working in verse 6. You know, you could dig into that if you're interested in that. There's a lot of other sermons and resources to look into and dive into. It's one of the tougher passages in the whole book of First Peter, maybe in the whole New Testament. And, of course, if I ever preach or when, hopefully I preach First Peter into the future, I'm going to, of course, definitely dive in to those tough questions that come up there in verse 6. But the main point that I want us to see here in, in, in what's being put forward is that we must be witnesses to unbelievers, not acting by, like them, but acting as salt and light in a dark world with godly actions that are different than theirs. It makes an impact. And we want to avoid those things for our own good, and, but also for our witness. We're sometimes going to be in situations where we're persecuted before it. But we have to prepare ourselves to flee from immorality of all kinds because there is so much of it all around us and we must be vigilant to fight against it because it's everywhere we look, right? And to remind us of our first point, the more we act and live like Christ, the more we will have nothing to do with these works of the flesh and sin. So if we just keep on fighting and keep on seeking to live more and more like Jesus and less and less like unbelievers or prior to your conversion... Before Jesus, the better. Lean in to Christ-like living and pursuit. And the Lord will use you as a witness. And he will continue to grow you in the Christian life. This leads us to our third point. Prepare to glorify Christ. Look with me now at verses 7 through 11 for this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We need to prepare to glorify Christ at all costs, church. In the midst of persecution, it's a great platform to do that. And we're in a situation in biblical history of the last times or the end 
times in that way. Jesus has gone. He's going to come again. We must be thinking more than just the here and now. What's going to happen next week or just even next month or even next year? But we need to be thinking with eternal perspective and that should affect the way that we live. That should affect our growth in the Christian life. It should cause us to be more and more self-controlled and sober-minded as we live in this fallen world. And in fact, if we're going down the way of worldliness, it's going to affect our prayers. Do you see it says there in verse 7, for the sake of your prayers. Our prayers are hindered when we're pursuing unrepentant sin and things of that nature. So one motivation amongst many of turning from sin is, of course, also that our prayers might be, not be hindered. And we need to be loving one another in this difficult time because even with conflict and sin, it says there that love covers a multitude of sin. In the church, we should see a kind of unity and love and care so that we might not uh, be a bad witness to others, but that we might just demonstrate the work of the Spirit in our hearts. If we're not, if we're grumbling and fighting and at each other all the time, we are, what are we going to be revealing? We're going to be showing the world and those around us that we're more and more like the world and less and less like Jesus Christ. Both in Ephesians and Colossians, it, it, the gospel motivates the fact that we might be forgiving one another, working things out. Love covers a multitude of sins, and even in those passages in Ephesians and Colossians, it's forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. The gospel changes us to, to live in light of that, and those things glorify Christ. You know, fighting and being at each other and pursuing sin, these types of things do not glorify our great Lord and Savior. Show hospitality without grumbling there. That glorifies Christ, as it says in verse 9. Opening up our homes, opening up our lives, caring for one another, loving one another in those ways. Oh, and doing it in a Christ-like way, not just, okay, kind of come on over, or talking bad about them before they come and when they leave. Oh, would they just leave? No, hospitable Christians love having others in their home and want to show that. They're not going to grumble about it, and if they have that grumbling heart, they're going to want to repent of that kind of thing. Do you see how practical this all is? We've all received gifts here, as verse 10 says, and each gift in the church needs to be deployed, not just one, not just the leaders, or not just every single one of us have a varied gifts given by the Spirit, and we need to live them out. But do you see there that in all of that, when we do that, when we're living in unity, using our spiritual gifts, coming together, being hospitable, loving one another, do you see all of that brings glory to Christ? Prepare in that way. Do that stuff now. And it's going to be a witness to the world and glorify our great God. And is there anything better than that? I don't think so. To, to the glory of God, to, to please our Lord, to do what he said. These, these things should motivate us so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus does a work in our lives. The Father's glorified in his work. The whole Godhead Father, Son, and Spirit is glorified in the work as Jesus makes us more and more like Jesus. 
The Spirit is about that. The Father is about that. The Son is certainly about that. Prepare to glorify Christ. This leads us to our fourth point. Also, prepare for fiery trials. Look at verse 12 through 14 for this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Prepare for the fire trial. If you're a Christian, it's going to happen. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, it's going to happen to you. When it happens to you, the world's going to be against you. People are going to hate you. Your family may even be against you. They may even hate you. They may persecute you. They may even put you to death. Your very own family. It's going to happen. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Be prepared for that. The world hated Jesus and hates Jesus. Unbelievers aren't interested in Jesus. It's those who are being saved. Those are transformed. Those are the ones who go to the light. Everyone else scatters away from the light. They hate the light. They persecute the light. They put the light to death. Think about it. Jesus went to the cross. Why? Because they didn't like him. Those in the dark didn't like him. So what do they do? They had him killed. They sent him to the cross. You think they're going to like us? We've been seeing this. They're not going to like us. We need to prepare. These fiery trials may come upon you, Don't act like we're surprised when those hardships come. If the New Testament all over talks about it so much, sometimes we just kind of ignore it or just kind of read over it. You know, we get to it. Now that doesn't apply to us. No, it does, which is why we spent three, four sermons in in Matthew on it. it. It applies to us. It may not seem like it. It may not seem like that heavy trial, the severe persecution, but it applies to us. You don't know what's going to happen. And you need to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because if you're like those 40 men of Sevaste, what are you going to do in a situation like that? Well, that'll never happen. Maybe, but if it does, in a different context, are you going to bear witness to Jesus or are you going to fold? Well, thankfully, the Bible talks a lot about these things. And it better talk about these things. Because I don't know about you, I wouldn't know what to do in light of these hard things. And if a lot of hard things came and persecution happened and all that, I would be inclined without a verse like this to be like, why in the world is all this terrible stuff happening to me? Why is everyone against me? I just love the gospel and I want to proclaim the gospel. Why does my family hate me? Why does my work, people in my workplace, why are they against me? Why are people persecuting me? Why don't they like me? Jesus said because they didn't like him, they're not going to like you. Be prepared for it. Don't ignore it. Prepare yourselves for the fiery trials beforehand because it's coming. It's coming, so you better prepare for it now. You can't say that you weren't warned about it. It's all over the scriptures. If we read our Bibles, we see it over and over and over again. Why? God is preparing us for fiery trials and persecution. Let's prepare our hearts in those ways. This leads us to point number five. Prepare for righteous suffering. Look at verses 15 to 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Some really obnoxious people who are maybe Christian 
might use verses about persecution to justify really sinful, unwise behavior. Sometimes people experience hardships because they're just kind of jerks to people or because they have got no wherewithal or for other reasons. That's not, that's not the persecution we're seeing here. Sometimes people experience hardship and suffer by doing sinful things. Jesus says it, the murderer, the thief, the evildoer, or the meddler, a meddler, a gossip, somebody who's going to get in between things and share secrets and listen to secrets and things of that nature. It's interesting that in that list there, just noticing it even now as I'm engaging with the text, let us not suffer for doing these evil things. Like a murderer, that's, we see that on the list. Thief, that's another one that we would see on a list like this. Or an evildoer, yeah, those evildoers are terrible. And then he adds in the meddler. And you could think, huh, why is that in there? That doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the verses. Well, uh, according to Scripture, it does. It's a sinful thing. All these things are sinful things. But if you suffer because you've basically created a mess for yourself because of your wicked doing, oh, that's not, oh, poor me, I'm a martyr, poor me, this is Christian suffering, look at all I'm going through. No, you're going through this because you're not being, because of your sin, because of your wickedness, not because of your righteousness, but because of your unrighteousness. Get this, if we suffer for doing evil things, we have that coming to us, in a sense. We have to repent, of course. There could be forgiveness in all of that. The Lord could restore us. But don't call it Christian suffering if you're suffering for your worldly sinful living. It's Christian suffering if we suffer for doing good, for righteousness' sake. So if someone ever says, no, pastor, you can't preach the word. You can't talk about this or that topic. And, and, and I say, I'm not going to listen to that kind of stuff, just like Christians throughout history. Let God be true, even though everyone a liar. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to preach it, and then I might suffer. That would be a good thing that I'd be suffering for, preaching the word of God, obeying God rather than man. Dealing with conflict with your family during the holidays or different things because you, you lovingly try to engage with them and help show the gospel and share Jesus, and, and they're just upset with you. They're, they're against you because you're a Christian, They've got nothing to do with you. They want nothing to do with you. Not, not because you're a jerk to them or judgmental and, and terrible to them, but, but because you're just a Christian. But just by being a Christian, many people in families and in workplaces suffer just by being a Christian. And being a Christian and doing Christian things are the righteous things that we should be doing. And if we suffer for that righteousness, then that is a, a, something not to be ashamed of, the text says. You're going through these different old things. We need to put lenses on. We need to put glasses on. Without it, we just say, I'm going through these terrible things. It's so awful. This is awful. I don't want this. I'm so unhappy about it because it's terrible. It's awful. And then you put your glasses on and go, oh, Jesus suffered like that. And Jesus calls me to suffer like that. And in this case, I'm suffering for righteousness, not for being an idiot, but, 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 but for righteousness. Not for being sinful, but for righteousness sake, because I'm a Christian. And if I suffer in that way, then I can rejoice. And then I have my glasses on and I say, no, this is good. You can almost take it and say, bring it on in a sense. It's not like you're trying to go get it, but if it's happening, you just know, this is happening right now because I love God over man. And I'm suffering now for righteousness sake. I'm like Jesus. The Lord use it to grow us. It glorifies Christ. In the end, even though it's a terrible experience, it's actually a really good thing that you 
are going through. Why? Because the Lord is using it for your good and for your growth and for his glory. Well, that's so important for us to see. It changes our perspective on suffering. And in fact, throughout the history of the church, some of the most significant movements of of God, some of the most significant revivals and, and wonderful things happen, not when everything is peace and easy and whatever and just chill. No, it's when there's persecution. The church has grown in those hard times. It gets stronger. People's faith are lifted up. Those who are persecuted, those who see persecution, those who band together in hard times, strengthens the church. Now talk about a paradox. That seems backwards. We saw some backwards things this morning in our text that seem kind of backwards. Take up your cross if you want your life. You know, die. I mean, that seems backwards. This seems backwards. But for whatever reason, God has put it forward that when there's suffering, great good comes from it. Think about Jesus' suffering. The greatest good in the history of the world has happened because of Jesus' willing death on the cross. His persecution, his suffering, him being killed on the cross for us. That's the gospel. The greatest good, all Christianity, we're still here thousands of years later because of that, what that happened there. Oh, the world was just completely transformed because of the gospel. Prepare for righteous suffering. And lastly, in number six. Prepare and warn a future judgment. Look at verses 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, then you could confidently go about your life and everything you do under the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of God, as a child of God, adopted into his family, his plan and his will for you, even if it includes hardships like the apostles went through, many of them, most of them were martyred, even if it includes that, he's doing for you in his will, in his plan, something that is far better than anything that you might just do on your own. The will of God, our faithful creator, is something that we could just put our our trust in. And in light of future judgment, we know that through Jesus, we have our judgment covered through him. We don't deserve eternal life in and of ourselves, but because we have Jesus, we're with Jesus. Jesus frees us. We're with him. He's our ticket to heaven. He's our reason for hope. And so even in God's awareness of and and even judgment of all, even the fact that Our lives are not lost on God, though we are not going to hell as believers, but we're going to heaven. He's aware of how we live, which is why we saw this morning that there is actual rewards. We saw it in Matthew 10. We saw it in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. How we live actually matters before the Lord. Just because we're justified by faith, by the grace, through faith, by the grace of God, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we live. 
yeah, we're getting to heaven through Jesus, but yeah, we live a whole life that is either pleasing God or displeasing God, things of that nature. And so those are realities that all of us have to face. But even in facing that, we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry because we're, we have Jesus. We've got forgiveness. And so we need to warn others about this future judgment coming. If the Christian is in a situation needing fully the grace and mercy and care and coverage of Jesus Christ alone as their only hope, what then of the unbeliever who doesn't trust Jesus? What's going to happen to them? How terrible is it going to be for them? That's an awful situation. They need to be warned. There's judgment coming. It's coming to them. So, so we need to be aware ourselves, but then warn others of future judgment. Because it's really, really bad. That's why it's so urgent for those who aren't in Christ to get in Christ before it's too late. Because there's judgment coming. You see how First Peter chapter 4 speaks to, oh, so many glorious realities. So many wonderful things What a picture, worldview, shaping stuff here as it relates to persecution. So in light of all this instruction from Peter, do you see why these 4th century soldiers chose not to disobey God for the expectations of these godless men and instead clung to obedience to God, even in a hard situation? Do you see why they might... Do you see passages like that that instructs Christians? Certainly they would have been aware of 1 Peter 4, Matthew chapter 10, and many other passages through the New Testament. They were just heeding Scripture to be more like Christ and to bear witness to unbelievers. If they folded, they would reveal to unbelievers that Christ really wasn't that big a deal. So what happened to the 40 men of Savaste? Well, when they wouldn't comply... I'm going to quote here from a retelling of the account. This is what happened. Pairs of guards seized each man and dragged them into the cold where they were stripped and tied to posts. Whips laid open their backs and iron hooks tore their sides. Still, the 40 refused to surrender. Agricola that's that governor, chained them in his dungeons. Finally, he commanded that they be stripped naked and driven onto the ice of a pond below Savaste. Think of the big old body of water frozen over just ice, driven out to the ice. The rebels is what they called them, these 40 men. There's the rebels, even though they were the ones who were doing righteousness. But the rebels did not wait for the sentence to be imposed, but tearing off their own clothes, ran to the pond in the raw March air. We are soldiers of the Lord and fear no hardship. They said, what is death for us but an entrance into eternal life? On this day, March 9th, 320, 320, the date, singing hymns, they stood shivering on the pond, As the sun sank, baffled, Agricola ordered hot baths 
placed around the pond to kind of bait them. Look, surely the warm water would lure the men off the ice. But the crisp night air carried a prayer to all the ears. Lord, there are 40 of us engaged in this battle. Grant that 40 may be crowned and not one be wanting from this sacred number. One of the men did lose his nerve, however, and crawled off the ice to a bath. He died the instant he touched the hot water. This was too much for one of the guards as the guard stood there taking all this in. It was too much for him. He shucked off his clothes, marched onto the ice, and took the place of the man who had failed. The 40 men died as martyrs for their allegiance to Christ that day. What a witness the collective soldiers were to that one guard. He was saved that day, to be sure. And though one gave in, another trust Christ. What a testimony that that was. Now, now you may, most likely none of us are going to be called to anything like that or anything like the apostles went through. Most likely. I can't guarantee you that. I don't know your future. I don't know my future. But the scriptures have so much teaching on the topic of persecution. Why? Because we are called to be like Jesus and be prepared. We need these things. We need these truths. Let these passages of Scripture and testimonies like this serve as the means of our preparation in these things. And let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you revealed in your word answers and direction and help and warnings about what Many of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ, even these 40 men, these 40 soldiers out there on the ice, many would endure, many have endured, many are enduring now throughout the world, many will endure in the future, maybe some here in this room, unthinkable hardships and suffering and trials and persecutions. But you, O Lord, are glorious and wonderful and wise to give us so much on this topic, to prepare us for what's ahead, to transform our living, to make our priorities different, to make a difference in our lives so that we might make a difference in this fallen world. We pray for your help in all these things. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.